the decision of what to eat is certainly important. In the case of mental health, protein plays a really big role. The amino acids that are found in protein, whether it's plant protein or an animal protein, those amino acids become the building blocks for our neurotransmitters. So the things that make up serotonin and dopamine and melatonin and all, all of the neurotransmitters that we think of as creating our mood. So really important to have the building blocks for those. Welcome to the Good Life Coach Podcast. I am your host, Michelle Lamoureux. The intention of this show is to awaken you to your fullest potential. Join me each week for inspiring interviews to elevate an area of your life, as well as interviews with women entrepreneurs who are creating success on their own terms. Each episode provides actionable tips to guide you to design a life you love. Hey there, it's Michelle, and welcome back to the show. We are jumping right in today to talk about mental wellness, and joining us is Dr. Heather Sanderson. Dr. Sanderson is the founder and medical director of North County Natural Medicine and the founder of Marama. She specializes in neurocognitive medicine and neurohacking. She has been trained to specifically address imbalances that affect the brain, including autism, ADD, ADHD, depression, anxiety, and Alzheimer's. Dr. Sanderson believes in the power of the body to heal itself and is dedicated to learning all there is to learn and know about the brain. Welcome, Heather. Thank you so much for having me, Michelle. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm so happy you're back again. And um, I am going to link in the show notes that we did talk about optimizing brain health and episode number 51. And that was a really popular episode. So thank you for your time on that. And look forward to diving in today. I'm just going to say before we get into the interview that I want to remind everyone this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing discussed is intended to be considered advice for your mental or physical health. And any issues with your health should always be directed to your trusted medical providers. Okay, so on that note, let's get into it today. Heather, um, I am curious, we are talking about mental wellness today. What kinds of issues do patients typically come in for? And I'm going to layer that with a part two, because I wonder, because you're a naturopathic doctor, if people are coming in for not feeling well and not realizing maybe it's related to other issues, because I know one of the benefits of seeing a naturopathic doctor is you dive deep into emotional health, not just physical health. And so you may even be asking questions like, how are your friendships? You know, are you, uh, do you have a great, so do you have good social connections? And people may not even realize there are other underlying issues going on emotionally that may be contributing to some of their physical symptoms. Yeah, you know, really... One of the tenets of naturopathic medicine is to treat the whole. So you really can't separate these pieces. Your digestion is related to your mental health, just like your big toes connected to your, you know, your foot, like everything is connected and to separate them out does them a disservice. Although we can be reductionistic and sometimes glean more information, we have to remember to put the part back into the whole. That context is so important when it comes to mental health in particular. You're absolutely right. Sometimes people are surprised by the depth of the intake paperwork that we have. And then also I set aside at least 75 minutes to have one-on-one. Sometimes it ends up being 90 minutes or more with a patient the first time that we chat. And that's because there is so much for me to learn. And there's so much I can't learn just from you filling out a form. Really exactly what you just mentioned, like 
what are your social connections? Like I always ask about relationships are the big kind of four, three to four things I ask about in terms of stress is one, what is your stress management management practice? Cause we should all have one Two, what are your relationships like? And not only do I mean your romantic relationships, but with your children, with your siblings, with your parents, with your friends, what is that like? What it, what's the support around you? And then three, of course, finances can stress people out. And four is your home. If you're in the middle of a remodel or if you are in the middle of moving or you keep moving, you haven't had that opportunity to create those good social connections because you keep bouncing from state to state. Your husband's in the military or you're in the military. For whatever reason, people sometimes move frequently and that can be really, really stressful. Or in my practice, of course, um, a lot of people suffer from mold illness. And so they're having to move. They don't feel safe in that home because it's toxic. So yeah, lots of components that um, I kind of put in the stress bucket that can be certainly a big influence on mental health. And yet there's all of these other people, other things, excuse me, that people wouldn't typically put in there. Like, are you having a bowel movement every day? How much water are you drinking? What have you been eating lately? All of those things also contribute to how, oh, exercise, of course, how you're feeling from a mental health perspective. Okay, so there's so many layers. Um, maybe you could take us into what are the fa- what's the foundation for foundations for mental health? Yeah, okay, so that was kind of the the list of it right there. So foundations for mental health start with like what you do when you get up in the morning, right? Certainly sleep, like we can even go backwards a minute. Sleep and getting to sleep consistently, getting enough sleep. That is so foundational, right? We've all had that feeling. You're a mom. I'm a mom, right? <laughs> like that's the stress of having a newborn. So much of it is the information. Um, not only the like anxiety, like is my child still breathing, but just the crazy that can come from not getting enough sleep. And in these these you know unprecedented times, um, the I think there's a little bit of a temptation to like stay up and watch the news or stay up and, and get into that Netflix show. Cause I don't have to commute tomorrow morning or whatever it is, you know, we're just kind of thrown off and it can be easy to throw our sleep habits off or sleep mm. off. And if you're getting a little bit more restful sleep, awesome. But if instead you've kind of indulged in the staying up late, getting up early or sleeping in late, you know, you're off your, your pattern then that inconsistency can be just as bad as interrupted sleep, right? So getting really consistent and having a routine around sleep and getting whatever is right for you. Some people it's seven hours, some people it's 10, you know, finding the amount of sleep that's good for you and then sticking to it. Can I ask you before you go on to the next foundational yeah. thing, because I know you talked about digestion and stuff too, which I'm curious about. How do you know what your set point is for a good night's sleep? Because you just said anywhere from seven to 10, right? So the recommendation is, you know, at least seven to eight hours or not more. I, I don't know. Is it how you wake up? Should you wake up feeling like ready to take on the day? Or do some people just naturally feel groggy and need that shower to wake up? Yeah, you know, there's different types of what they're called are chronotypes. Um, so like your night owl and your morning person, right? And so different people have these different normals for sleep. And I used to think that it was really important to like get those hours before midnight in. And as I've talked to more sleep experts, I've kind of shifted my opinion recently that it's more about consistency and figuring out what's important for you. 
And there, there are a bunch of sleep experts in this, um, in this area who can, that's what they say. It's the consistency. So if 1230 is your bedtime and that's what's best for you, don't go to bed at 10 one night and at, you know, 1.30 a.m. the next night. Go to bed within about 15 to 30 minutes of 12.30 a.m. every night. If you're, especially if you're like a night owl. And then give yourself the amount of time that you need. And what I've understood from these sleep experts is that if you're consistent about your bedtime, then usually your sleep is more efficient. So instead of needing being a person that needs eight to nine hours, if you get to bed at 12.30 a.m. every night, because that's your night owl, then you'll be waking up at like 7.30 or 8 and you'll feel fully rested. Maybe you only need seven and a half hours, whereas before you felt like you needed nine. But because your sleep is now more efficient, because it's more consistent, you can get away with less sleep. Now, some people don't feel like they need that much and that's like they're normal. Other people feel like they need a lot um, and that's their normal and that doesn't really shift. But are you well rested? That like hit the nail on the head, your question there. Do you wake feeling rested and ready for your day? If not, then you don't, you, you can't check that box that that foundation is, is good to go. Okay. Okay. What's the next one? So diet, you had mentioned diet and, and nutrients. There's a lot of overlap here. So the question of, are we putting the right things in our bodies, right? How do we decide what's good for us? Or, or, you know, maybe we've decided it's not good for us, but we override that and eat it anyways. Um, so the, the decision of what to eat is certainly important. In the case of mental health, protein plays a really big role. The amino acids that are found in protein, whether it's plant protein or an animal protein, those amino acids become the building blocks for our neurotransmitters. So the things that make up serotonin and dopamine and melatonin and all, all of the neurotransmitters that we think of uh, as creating our mood. So really important to have the building blocks for those. Can I ask you on the protein then? So I always say to my daughter when we're trying to make our meals morning, I'm like, we need our pr- some protein, a little healthy fat and, you know, whatever else she may want for breakfast. But at each meal, you should be having that protein. Well, you know, there's a lot of ways to play with this and different people will have different experiences. I typically recommend a good starting point is about 15 grams of protein for breakfast. So two eggs is about that. It's 14 ish. Um, one egg is about seven grams of protein. And then if you're using amino acids as a mental health therapy, things like taurine can be really relaxing. Inositol, um, of course, tryptophan or 5-HTP is the precursor to serotonin that can be used. GABA is a relaxing neurotransmitter using things like taurine. Those amino acids, if you're using them as a therapy, you actually want to do them on an empty stomach because then they're more likely to be that, that neurotransmitter backbone if you get a kind of a bolus dose on an empty stomach. So it depends what your goals are, but for just that nice, even mood and to avoid the sugar crash, if you have plenty of fat and protein with each meal and even with the snacks, right, you're not having like a soda or a candy bar. And so your blood sugar is going to spike and then crash. And then you're going to feel, you're going to feel anxious or depressed when you get into that crash zone. So when you say things like taurine or whatever, would that be part of a supplement that you're being Uh, prescribed or like suggested that you start taking because, right, I was generally talking about a diet, generally speaking, in terms of getting that protein and laying down that foundation, you got your sleep and good nutrients. But that would be something that maybe somebody like you, you'd go see and say, hey, you know what, let's supplement. I think you need a little boost. You're exactly right. That would be more of an intervention versus a a foundation. But like magnesium, magnesium can be really great for kind of making us feel a little bit more relaxed. 
And that can be foundational in some cases because so many people are magnesium deficient. So yeah, but thank you for making that, that, um, that, that nuance clear that this would be more of an intervention versus a foundation. And when just to finish kind of the, the dietary foundation there, 15 grams at breakfast and then seven to 10 grams for like a nursing mom or a pregnant mom, we're going to say every two hours after for a teenager, every maybe two and a half, three hours after. And there are some adults who, you know, can go for four hours or so in between meals, but, um, getting seven to 10 grams, whenever that next meal comes up is, can be really important for just maintaining again, that foundation of enough protein in the system to supplement to not supplement in this case, we're not, but to, to just, yeah, that, that foundation of building blocks that's present so that if your, your brain wants to make serotonin, it can, if it wants to make dopamine, it can. Yeah. It's so interesting because I think many of us probably aren't thinking enough about that and don't realize that just what we're eating every day is contributing to how we feel mentally and emotionally and physically. So if we're not giving our body the foundation to do what it needs to do just to, to be, then we are actually contributing to that. What are some of your favorite sources of protein? You mentioned eggs. Yeah. So personally, I actually have an egg allergy. So it, oh, it's no. like every morning, <laughs> my whole family has eggs and they feel great. And I just have like awful reactions to eggs. So I avoid them. But um, like nut butters are a great source of protein, organic sausage in the morning, because the morning it's like that, that first meal. And I think it really sets the tone for the rest of the day. So I, we do consume animal protein in my, in my house. And um, so, but all organic, like well-sourced meats. And then the, the plant proteins, you know, like hemp seeds in your smoothie. Um, there's like we do some cheese, but even like protein from in smoothies, going back to smoothies, um, like the pea milk has a lot of protein, almond milk, you know, there's a lot of those nut milks have tons of protein in them. And then I love nutso, um, the, the mixed seed and nut butter. And then of course, you know, all of the almond butters and macadamia nut spreads and all that stuff is so tasty and yummy in the morning. Okay. Thank you. Just in case people are going to be like, oh, I'd like some ideas. So that's, that's great. Okay. And so you were talking about digestion, which I think is we hear this, but we don't always pay attention. So a bowel movement a day is really the norm or should be the norm. Yeah. You know, some people it's more than one a day, but if you're not having a bowel movement every 24 hours, that can start to make you feel bloated and irritable, right? So if we're talking about mental health and you always have stomach pain or stomach discomfort, so distracting, it's irritating. It's just like, it's not a setup for strong mental health, right? And then the other piece of that is it's a clue that there might be some bacterial dysbiosis or, you know, there could even be parasitic or or viral or fungal dysbiosis in the gut. And those things, you know, the more we learn about gut microbes, they drive everything else, right? Our weight, our mood, our, you know, memory, our so many things are driven by that microbial milieu in the gut that if you are having symptoms, it's really important to figure out what's going on with those microbes. And can we just, you know, can, is it as simple as a probiotic in terms of making you feel better? Okay. And again, that would be done in, with, in, with a naturopathic doctor, right? They would help dis- discern what was going on. Yeah. yeah, that can be helpful. I mean, a probiotic or fermented foods, again, foundational, very foundational. Um, you see that in cultures all over the globe as being something that really supports health. And so adding, adding sauerkraut or kombucha, not too much sugar, um, <laughs> but kefirs, there, uh, soy products like miso, 
all of those things can be super helpful. Um, kimchi, yum. And if that starts to make you feel gassy or bloated even more so, then that's an indication, again, that there's maybe a microbial imbalance that we would want to explore further. And you could do that with a provider. Okay. That's helpful. Okay. So, you know, are there any other foundational ones you want to mention? Are those the key? Yeah. So you should be having a bowel movement every day, at least one. And then there should be an absence of gas, bloating, indigestion. Like, I mean, obviously like some gas is normal, but it shouldn't be like putrid and it shouldn't be like over the top where your entire family is having to clear the room, right? It should be like (laughs) a normal amount of gas. It should not be painful. You know, um, if there's, um, and and I think you, you make a good point. I I think it's what you're trying to sort of say is like, everyone's normal is different. And I've had a patient who told me they had normal bowel movements. And then when I dug a little deeper, it was a bowel movement every seven days. So he was under the impression that that was his normal. That was totally normal. And that is not normal, right? So having that conversation about, okay, what is really normal? And although I appreciating the fact that there's some variability between individuals, but really, um, there's outside of, there's also something outside of that, right. That is not going to be healthy. Okay. And so just some general suggestions you mentioned, fermented foods, but increasing fiber, drinking more water. Yeah, absolutely. Especially if you're having trouble with those bowel movements, fiber and water can be helpful. Um, veggies, more veggies, like you had mentioned, um, Sometimes we don't realize how big of a role diet has to play with our emotions. Kind of the same thing with our gut. If you change your diet, I mean, that's the easiest proof that that what you decide to eat can influence your mood and your bowels. Uh, It happens sometimes overnight. Wow. Okay. And it's true, you know, that everyone's with the coronavirus right now is talking about the coronavirus 10 or 15 or weight people are putting on because in addition to maybe not sleeping their normal schedule because they're not having to drive into an office every day. Um, sleep has been off for a lot of people just because of general anxiety. And then eating's been off, at least in the beginning. I mean, I think people are like, okay, we've been in it longer and pulling back the reins now and trying to readjust. So hopefully this information will hit at the right time when maybe they're focused on that. But what are some extra things we can do during this really unusual time to maintain our sanity? I've read that anxiety is like through the roof for not just adults, but children now too. You know, the whole diet component of coronavirus, I mean, the whole coronavirus experience, right? It's this amazing invitation. There's tons of tragedy. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, this is like horrifying. And I wish that it did not happen. Um, However, if we have to go through this, right, just like any other horrifying experience, if we have to go through this, then how, how can we frame it so that it's something that empowers us, right? And being stuck at home, there is a huge gift in that, in, in that we have complete control over what we eat right? You go to the grocery store and you can decide. You don't have the temptation of a birthday party or a restaurant meal, right? You don't have to go out to that work dinner anymore where you're going to feel like an outcast if you don't get the fettuccine Alfredo, right? Like you can, and have a, you know, a beer or whatever. You can really, it's this incredible opportunity to really manage what we're consuming, And you can do it at the grocery store, right? So that it's not in your fridge. It's not in your pantry. It's such a great opportunity to cleanse your kitchen and make these choices 
stick to them, follow through and really get the feedback of how does my body feel? How does my brain feel? What's my mood like? What are my bowels like? Now that I've really fully committed without those external pressures, uh, tempting me to go off track. Okay. That's actually super helpful. But what about in terms of um, ways to manage anxiety right now? Yeah, absolutely. So I think that controlling the things that we can, of course, is a big piece of this. So one of the other big foundations are two of the other big foundations are exercise and stress management strategies. Now, it's my belief, my bias that everyone should be in therapy and that meditation is the best medicine by far meditation there. And it's the best deal in medicine too, right? Cause it's totally free and that exercise is moving meditation essentially. So it's a great way to discharge a lot of the adrenaline or a lot of the stress. It's a good time for us to step away from our phones and our computers and just be moving, be active. Um, and there's a ton of science about what that's doing in terms of endorphins and, and clearing adrenaline. So, and sometimes creating adrenaline. Um, so just having a regular practice around that and again, committing to it, this incredible opportunity that is coronavirus and the lockdowns associated that we have a bit more time because we're not, we're not commuting. We get to, we get this incredible opportunity to like reframe our, our priorities and our, what our schedule looks like. What, what are we going to do with our day? And we have the opportunity to put meditation in there. We have the opportunity to put exercise in there. We have the opportunity to put cooking in there. All of these healthy habits, like who do I want to be on the other side of coronavirus? Like Mm -hmm. what, what habits do I want to instill? And these ones that support our mental health are certainly at the top of my priority list. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would invite others to to consider the same. Yeah, thank you. I totally agree with that. And I guess I'm wondering, though, when somebody's feeling beyond anxious, when they're they're actually depressed. And so, you know, I don't know exactly what happens in the brain, but let's say, you know, the the part that would have the spark to want to initiate exercise and connecting and doing all that stuff is dimmed down, right? Mm-hmm. So somebody isn't really feeling like they know they need to do the stuff, but they're maybe too too sad or depressed or fearful or whatever is a combination of things going on. How do you navigate that? I mean, is that you? It's interesting because you mentioned that everyone should have a therapist. You said that's your bias. Maybe this is a part of the recipe, but I'd I'd like your thoughts and why actually that that you think that. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, therapy is this, again, another opportunity for us to have a professional who has a a tool belt of interventions that you shouldn't even really be able to perceive, right? But they can help you to explore some of these patterns of the way we think, patterns of perception um, that may or may not serve us right? And sort of amplify the ones that do and help us to quiet the ones that don't. And just being, having someone who can identify those patterns and be aware of those patterns um, and, and support you in processing whatever your traumas are, because everyone's got them, um, is so valuable. So, so valuable. And it can take a little bit of time for people to find the right therapist. And I really encourage people to, when they're looking, it's like shopping or it's like dating, however you want it, whatever analogy you want to, um, to make appointments, appointments with maybe three or four therapists. And I know it's expensive and I know it takes time, but I, I love if someone has the opportunity to do it before they're in a crisis state so that they can have that established relationship with someone they 
like, they appreciate whose insights they respect. Mm -hmm. And then when they are in crisis, they know exactly who to go to. They don't delay getting the help. And hey, if they if it's someone who supports healthy people, then they can maybe push them towards personal growth a little bit more along the way in between crises, right? That are in that inevitably come up. Um, in the case of you know, like you asked, okay, some people are at that crisis point already. There are, you know, uh, there's a whole laundry list of medications that you can get from your primary care provider or a, a psychiatrist. And what's scary to me is one, how addictive a lot of them are, and then how coronavirus is temporary. This is not going to last for the rest of our lives, or even God forbid it did, like we will find a way, we will adapt and find a way to make it a new normal where we can all socially interact, physically interact again. So that's not going to last forever. But in this time, um, a lot of people are being put on medications that they will be on long-term well after the coronavirus resolves and whatever that looks like. So it, it's sad and scary to me that so many people, you know, I think they're up by some ungodly percentage. I think it was 30% more prescriptions for benzodiazepines and SSRIs right now, or that was maybe a month ago than in February of 2020. Wow. So really scary increases in the amounts of medications that are being prescribed. And I get it. Like people can't go to sleep and they're worried about their family members and they're worried about money and there's a lot going on. And yet we have all these tools that are free, that are, there's a lot of, there's so much, there's so much literature about meditation being more helpful, about exercise being more helpful, about diet being more helpful than any of the SSRIs. So it's just a little sad to me. Um, although I get it, it's a little sad to me that so many people feel like they have to reach for that. There are other things that we can do. And Dr. Walsh's work is what one of the tools that I employ at the clinic at North County Natural Medicine. And what Dr. Walsh did was um, he got into mental health in the late 70s with another doctor named Carl Pfeiffer. And they were looking initially at like, sociopaths at incarcerated people. And um, they were looking to see if there was some sort of pattern they could get to in their blood work. And eventually what they stumbled on was that whole blood histamine, zinc and copper ratios, and then something called urine cryptopyrroles were helpful in determining these certain patterns of under and over methylation and then copper toxicity and this pyroluria. And if we were able to sort of correct those things with using just nutrients, that a lot of the, the sociopaths would no longer be sociopaths, that depressed people would no longer be depressed. And so it's a tool that it, and it, it's not for a hundred percent of people, but I've certainly had enough success in my practice that I think it's worth doing for everyone and intervening. It's also very safe, right? It's, it's very safe to add these nutrients. So if we can intervene, get those numbers sort of into the functional range and then see how people feel the risk associated with that versus the risk of being addicted to Ambien or to Xanax for the rest of your life is much, much lower and the benefit is that you get more balance. So especially in the case of zinc and copper uh, ratios with zinc, you get improved mood. Yes. Mm -hmm. You get improved immune function. You, like your hair starts to grow and your nails are, are longer for um, and thicker and, and healthier. For younger kids, sometimes they'll get a little growth spurt afterwards and their acne will clear up. So what you see is not only are we 
yes, we're intervening with a, a certain nutrient, but what you're doing is you're creating more balance and function and optimization in the entire body, not just in the brain and the neurochemistry. Although that is of course a piece of it. That was, that's kind of how we arrived here. Right. Um, so Dr. Walsh's work, what I appreciate so much about it is that what we're doing is creating balance and how you know you're doing that is because the side effect is that other things get better, right? Can you, do you mind giving an example? I mean, obviously not naming a patient, but just, or just hypothetically, you know, how the system works, you know, do you get a blood test? You know, what's, what's involved? Yeah. So I had a great patient come in Um, he was a younger boy. I think he was 12 at the time we started seeing each other. He's probably 17 now. I haven't seen him for a while. Um, he's just cruising on his plan. Um, he came in because he was having a lot of social anxiety and his mom couldn't leave school. He would, she would have to stay there with him in his class because he would have so much anxiety that he would just want to go home with her when she left. It was so sad. And he was like a boy scout and trying to go on campouts and he would crawl into his dad's tent Aww. and he's 12, you know, he's like old enough that this should be a fun time for him. He should be playing with his friends and, and enjoying school, enjoying campouts. And he was just like totally overcome with anxiety. And even like the days before the camp out, he would start to get really, really anxious. So he came in and, um, we did the workup for him and what it is, is it's a, it's blood and urine. So we take the blood, we have you avoid supplements for a couple of days beforehand, take blood and urine and then ship it off to the lab. And then we look at the different parameters when they get back for him, it was the, it must've been the second follow-up because the first time I saw him, you know, we, we got the whole story. Then the second time he'd gotten a little bit of benefit from adding things like amino acids. And then, which it, for me, that's kind of a guess like, okay, here, maybe these things could help you. And with him, he'd never drank alcohol. He'd never done cocaine. You know, he'd never obviously like done these things that add that, that um, hijack our neurotransmitters essentially. And sometimes I can elicit some sense from how you respond to different drugs or alcohol or, or even pharmaceuticals or, or over-the-counter things like Benadryl. So I didn't have that kind of information. So I was kind of guessing with amino acids. And then we got the information in the second follow-up. He said, hey, doctor, have you ever seen an old lady walking kind of a big dog? And it's more like the dog is walking her. He's like, yeah, where's this going? <laughs> and mm -hmm. he's like, well, now I feel like I'm walking my dog. Oh, that's oh. so sweet. Oh, so it was, it was an immediate result for him or very soon after. Quick. Yeah. He, oh. um, he felt the difference so profoundly to be able to give that analogy. And kids say it in a way that adults, I think, yeah, always like find the language, but it's that idea that like your brain is controlling you sometimes. And now he was in control. He was the master of what was going on. And, um, and other adults have said similar things too, but not with like that picture. Um, so yeah, I've had other, other patients where, um, you know, maybe they're not a hundred percent better in terms of their anxiety or depression hasn't completely resolved, but now they need less of their medication. So they don't have the weight gain and the low libido that they used to have. Now they have a little bit, you know, more libido and they're happy with their weight but they don't have the depression because they're on half of the dose that they used to be on. No, that's uh, great. Yeah. I've also, it's been a little scary because people have wanted to get off their medications and been really attached to that. And I don't recommend playing with the medications, especially right away. Um, it really, it takes four to six months for this to kind of 
you know, run its course and do what it's meant to do. And then some people come down in medication, but I am not attached to them coming completely off of them. It's not that medication is bad. Mm -hmm. It's that we want people to have peace, to have, uh, to have stable mood. Yeah. And I was just going to actually ask you about the medication piece, because I wouldn't want anyone who is on any medication to feel at all any shame or any feelings of like, you know, for some people, it may literally be life-saving. I have patients, you know, they'll come in for a while and they need it for a year or two. And then they kind of, you know, forget that they need it or they get off of this Walsh supplements and there's nothing stressful going on in their life. So they go about their, their business, you know, and then a few years later, they're back and like something happened. They went through a divorce or their parent died or something horrible happened. And now they're feeling like they need it again. So we just kind of reassess and get them on back on track. And maybe that, you know, I'm not attached. They might not need it again or somebody else, you know, the COVID thing, I had a patient, she was doing pretty well and she felt like it totally overwhelmed her and she got back on her medication and there's no judgment. It's just all about what works best for you. Yeah. It's not a failure. It's just a recalibration for what you need in the moment. Yeah. And what you're saying is making me think, you know, when you're stressed or there's inflammation or things are, there's dis-ease, there's things going on in the body, it taps your resources, right? Isn't this true? So basically what, if if I'm understanding correctly too, some of those nutrient deficiencies are being caused because your body's calling for more nutrients to solve one issue, but then it's causing another. Right. Exactly. It's all about balance, right? Too much little in the wrong place at the wrong time. Hormones come up in this context as well. And certainly nutrients, having enough nutrients so that you can create the hormones that you need to keep your mood balanced is really important. I was actually going to ask you about that because I think, you know, my audience is women. And so with perimenopause or menstrual cycles or, you know, even menopause, like I know for me when I um, I'm getting my menstrual cycle. I don't know if I'm in perimenopause or not. I could sleep for two days. I mean, not literally, but I never had that when I was younger. And I think, what is that about? I mean, I'm just more, I'm just not as energetic as I normally would be. And I'm like, that must be hormones, I imagine. It's not necessarily, it's definitely, it's not depression. It's just, I'm just tired. But for anyone who's ever had a child, like, are you kidding me? Can hormones affect our mood? Like, we all know. Right. Yeah, just how the stereotypical like crazy pregnant lady or whatever, um, and then the the just totally head over heels and love oxytocin laden mom, right? So these those hormones certainly, of course, affect us, and and as we go through these big transitions, like the onset of menarche for teens, and we, we can all relate to maybe what that was like for us, and then as we have daughters who approach teenage years, um, you get to see it all over again. And certainly that is affecting our mood and tolerance and patience um, for both moms and daughters. Uh, So, and then again, going through menopause, of course, each of these transitions affects our mood. I mean, that's, that's just like the, the caricature of those stages of life, right? right? Is that people are irritable or crazed. And how do we do it with grace, right? Yeah, what's the support system? Because I'll have friends who say, I don't feel like myself. I'm yelling at my family all the time. I don't know who I am anymore. (laughs) You know, they're like, 
confused. What do I do? Patients. I've had patients who change their diet and their hot flashes go away and they feel like themselves again, right? They just go to a vegan diet or they just go to a keto diet or whatever it is. They switch their diet and it works for them. I have other patients who try that and their hot flashes just get worse and worse, right? And hot flashes are a good measure because you can count them. They happen every day typically, you know, and if they're starting to go down in severity or in frequency, then it's such a, it's an easy thing to to, ma- to measure, right? Versus irritability. It's like, you kind of want to forget that. You want to forget that you yelled at your husband or your kids. Um, <laughs> so you're not counting it. But the hot flashes are something that are really, that are relatively easy. And so then when we add things like progesterone and some estrogen or some herbs or whatever's on the, the list that works for you um, or seems relevant for you based on your labs, then having that resolve, we we can kind of measure it and know that it's working. But I do think that it's a combination, right? Like you said, foundations of mental health, it's the same foundations for hormonal health, nutrients, diet, exercise, stress management, and good sleep. And if you've got all those under control and it's still, you still feel like a wreck, then go see someone and have those hormones measured. Progesterone's the happy hormone. It interacts with GABA in our brain. It helps us with sleep. It and then getting enough estrogen, and not so that you're a cycling woman into your 90s, but just so that you are at that baseline level that allows you to maintain your sanity and not have ha- not have the hot flashes or vaginal dryness or night sweats that can make you feel crazy. So just enough to keep you at that level where your your hormones are are under control. They don't control you. Mm-hmm. Um. So I'm just curious. So when you see somebody who is anxious or depressed in your practice, you basically are looking at these, just, I'm just trying to make sure I get it. You're looking at the, you know, how's their foundational health, right? Or, you know, you're looking at that, you're looking at the emotional state, and then you're looking at maybe doing something like Dr. Walsh's protocol to to assess if there's any deficiencies to be replenished. Yeah. And Dr. Walsh also mentions um, toxicity. And certainly that's a big focus of my practice. So he mentions heavy metal toxicity. So high levels of lead or mercury, you know, we know from Flint, Michigan and other places where poor children are being poisoned by lead in their drinking water, that has, that has the ability to change IQ levels at very, very low levels. Um, So at even below like CDC standards, you're already seeing a shift in IQ levels, especially in a developing brain. That is just so horrifying and um, ugh, awful. And in adult brains, when we're being exposed to heavy metals or mold toxicity or even chemical toxins, this can influence our hormones and then indirectly influence our mood. But particularly mercury, I mean, Mad Hatter's disease came from this whole idea that hatters, people who used to make hats, mm-hmm. there was um, in the felting process, there was mercury used. And so they would put on like the Mad Hatter from Alice in Wonderland, yeah. right? To see this crazy guy. And so people who are exposed to mercury go crazy. They are depressed. They, they have high rates of suicidality. Um, and so if there is an exposure to heavy metals, whether it's from our drinking water or from amalgams or from fish or from, you know, sometimes we don't even know where it's coming from, um, that can have play a big influence on our mental health. And certainly anyone who has experienced mold toxicity will tell you that anxiety and depression are just, that's comes with it. And the fatigue, right? The fatigue of 
feel of having a high toxic burden is in it in and of itself depressing, right? You don't have the ability to engage in the, in the world in, in your life in the way that you want to. You're not, you're not achieving your full potential, which would be depressing for anyone. Thank you. This has been so eye opening and interesting. And it sounds like, I mean, I'm a fan of Western medicine for many things, but I do, for me, you said you, your bias is that everyone should see a therapist. My bias is that you should have a amazing Western, you know, traditionally trained doctor that you love, and you should have a naturopathic doctor that you love because you're not going to, there's going to be certain things that with root cause issues that they're not going to be in your seven minutes that you get with your primary care doctor that's never going to be able to get addressed. I couldn't agree more. You know, I used to joke, like, if I'm in a car accident, take me straight to the emergency room, right? And not a joke, but please do, right? Right, right. I had my my baby and I had something called help syndrome and then had a postpartum hemorrhage. So um, if it, if I had had my baby at home, I would have died, right? Like, it was bad. Oh I got very, very sick. And here I am, like, 19 months later. Like, I still am processing that. And um, my doctor, Dr. Cap um, uh, in Encinitas, he was incredible. Western trained. I was in the hospital. It was the absolute only place I should have been. Mm-hmm. And I, of course, I wanted to have a home birth. I wanted to do everything naturally and I didn't want to be induced. But when it was, when my life was on the line, like I needed to be in a hospital getting all of the benefits of Western medicine. And a hundred years ago, 200 years ago, I wouldn't be here anymore. Mm-hmm. And so I feel very, very, very fortunate to have access to both. There is wisdom and and value in in both of these approaches, and I couldn't agree more. Have have good doctors on your team from from both perspectives. I'm sorry that happened, though. That's that's really hard. Um, so, any exciting research in mental health that you want to share about that? I think, well, I already know a little bit that, you know, this is something that you are sort of excited about. So can you share? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that I'm most excited about is the research around psychedelics, because this is, um, you know, it's, it is using a substance. And I think there's a lot of criticism around this and, and social scrutiny. And there's a, a lot of uh, biases and assumptions that go into this. And I still hear people call them drugs. And I would say, I don't, I won't put them in that category. I, I don't think of them as illegal drugs anymore. Now, certainly they are still illegal. So, um, so don't go do them and get in trouble. And yet they're, they're really medicine. And this plays out over and over and over again in terms of the ways they were used historically by indigenous cultures, in terms of what we see in the science, that they are really, if there were a medication that could be curative, like these are in that category where you get really profound change in just one dose, right? So they're not the type of medicine that most pharmaceutical companies like because you don't have to take repeated doses and pay for them over and over for the rest of your life. No, you just take them once. And this is psychedelic assisted psychotherapy, right? So it's not, I'm not suggesting that you like eat mushrooms and go for a walk with your friends. I'm saying more the idea and what's been studied for certainly end of life depression, um, for addiction, for lots of, for several different mental health um, issues, diagnoses, taking a psychedelic with a guide where you set an intention. So this idea of set and setting, you're with a, a trained guide who 
helps you set an intention beforehand, then is there with you on the journey or during the experience of the psychedelic and the gold, all the golds of this, what you, the value in it is the integration afterwards with a trained psychotherapist. And in that, what we find, and it's not for hundred percent of people, but the numbers are like 80% of people feel less depression, even a year later, right after one single dose. So the benefit, the potential benefit here is astounding and incredible. And I, I happen to be in the camp that believes that this is part of the mental health epidemic. This is part of the solution to that. Um, so where we feel so disconnected, where we feel so traumatized, where there is a lot of violence in the media and, you know, and potentially in our neighborhoods, when we're experiencing that kind of trauma, um, that this is a way to relatively quickly, like make sense of it and, and find the gift in it and turn it around so that we become better because of it. Not despite, not despite our experiences, but because they, they help to ingrain who we are and who we want to help and how we want to contribute. So that experience of like ego disillusion and having that experience of, um, your truth with a capital T kind of that, that experience of all being connected is what a lot of people describe when they've been through these psychedelic experiences. And so on, on the other end of that, it's hard not to be more compassionate. It's hard not to be, you know, more empathetic. And those are things that create a a healthier society from a mental health perspective and just from a societal perspective. Yeah, I've heard a little bit about psychedelics on different podcasts. I think Tim Ferriss, there's certain people who are just huge proponents of it. I don't know enough about it. Um, I think uh, there's somebody, I think, I can't think of his name, who's um, uh, big in the meditation space. I think Ram- it was, uh, yeah. What? Rampas. Yes. I guess he yes. was on Oprah or something. Ta- and, I, and, you know, so I've heard little bits and pieces, but what, what are the psychedelic drugs? What, what? Yeah. So Michael Pollan has How to Change Your Mind is this incredible book, right? Like if he can do for psychedelics what he did for food, that would just be amazing and, and probably change the world. Um, and he he takes you through a lot of the science. And one of the fun parts of the whole psychedelic story is the story and the characters. So there was a lot of this was going on at Esalen in like the 60s. And um, there, yeah, there's a whole crew. And Ram Dass is one of these guys that was was in that crowd. And then Rick Doblin is the creator of MAPS, which um, they have a group that's interested in, in doing a lot of the research. Um, and um, they are... <laughs> So that's the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. That's what Rick Doblin started, MAPS. And um, it basically what they are trying to do is put together research. And they focused really on MDMA. But there are plant medicines, so like ayahuasca, San Pedro, psilocybin is a mushroom-related one. Um, there's a bunch, and I, probably, I couldn't even list all of them. Sometimes ketamine which is legal. Ketamine-assisted psychotherapy can be done on by IV by doctors and then uh, by medical doctors. So you'll see ketamine clinics that are often associated with other transcranial um, stem therapies. So you, they're not insurance-based by any stretch, but that is a, something that you can get access to now. And a lot of people will describe, I've had patients who have said that's the most profound thing they've ever done. They've been on SSRIs for decades. And then they did a ketamine treatment and now they're off of them and they're doing great. Um, 
so just there's a there's kind of a spectrum and I think there's some disagreement and even in the psychedelic field about what belongs in the psychedelics camp and what does what is more of a medication um ketamine of course is like the horse tranquilizer so oh, wow. some people will include that and other people won't and then if it's synthetic is that like LSD does that count or does it not and Rick Doblin he's like it doesn't matter it, they're all in there um and I'm a naturopath, so I'm like, oh, I think the plants are cool. <laughs> but yeah, I guess time will tell. The research will tell, you know, what what people get different kind of the different elements as they shake out. Maybe if one's better for um, alcoholism or one or addiction or one's better for depression or one's better for anxiety or maybe one will be like call to you. I think that starts to get into more of the naturopathic herbal side of things. Completely. Well, it's actually fascinating. And what you talked about with indigenous cultures, you know, probably using this stuff regularly, and then it just didn't become the norm anymore as, you know, different things changed. And the same thing you mentioned with the, um, like the kefir and the, you know, the, is that, um, What's the word I'm looking for? Not the probiotics. It's oh, and kimchi, like all of these fermented foods. Fermented foods, which were absolutely parts of that's my ancestry. It was absolutely a part of the culture, and so you either had that in your home or or you didn't. But you know, I think things kind of cycle back around, and maybe that's where we are at with the psychedelics. It's just interesting for people to be aware of, you know, what the controversy is and what the discussion is. And I know you're all about the brain and brain health and and science, so. I was curious about that, but um, you've been amazing. Where can people learn more about your practice, Dr. Sanderson? Yeah, so we have, um, of course, the website, social media, both North County Natural Medicine and then Marama. We haven't really talked about um, dementia and Alzheimer's, but um, maramaexperience.com or northcountynaturalmedicine.com are both of those websites. And then you can find us on on um, the same um, what are the handles on social media, on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. Okay. I'll definitely link those up. And when I link up episode number 51, we do talk about, it was just before you had launched or you were just about to launch Marama. So they'll hear your research on Alzheimer's and dementia and, and what you were about to, to launch there and can go deeper for people who have family members with those issues. So this is always so enlightening and so, uh, informative. And I'm so grateful for your time today. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure and always a lot of fun to talk to you, Michelle. Oh, thank you. This is Michelle Lamoureux, and you've been listening to the Good Life Coach podcast. Now, remember, all of the show notes can be found over at thegoodlifecoach.com. Now, I have one favor before you sign off today. If you've benefited from any of the shows that you've listened to and really enjoyed the content, would you be kind enough to take just one minute and rate and review the show over on Apple Podcasts? It's how I know what's resonating with you, and also it helps other women find the show. Thank you as always for tuning in, and I look forward to reconnecting next Wednesday. Bye for now.